0: Me. Hallelujah. Good to have you out this morning. We're going to continue in our uh, look at the questions of Jesus. And so, if somebody could get me Luke 14, 26 to 36, Daniel, uh, Rome. <laughs> Romans three twenty four, Somebody give me that, Dennis, Romans five fifteen, Richard, somebody get me Romans 11, 6. Jeff, Al, get me uh, Colossians 1.10, first uh, 1 Timothy 6.18, Joel, Titus 2.14, uh, Dave, Eric, get me Titus 3.8, somebody get me James 2.17, Corey, Deuteronomy 10.12-13, Richard, Matthew 19.17, Mike, uh, Hoyt, get me Matthew 18.3. And so we've been looking at the questions Jesus asked his disciples, and we have to understand that these questions are still pertinent to us today. Anyone who would be a disciple of Christ has to ask himself these questions and put himself in the shoes of the disciple, because these are very uh, telling questions that Jesus asked his disciples to get down to the heart of the matter on various issues. And so it's completely appropriate that you and I would apply them in our own lives. So let's look here. Uh, we've looked at uh, his ultimate question: "Was who do you say that I am?" Then uh, we looked at "Are you hard-hearted?" We looked last week at "Where is your faith?" And uh, this morning I want to look at counting the cost uh, out of Luke 14: 26 to 36. Real loud. 26 to 36. If anyone comes to me and
1: doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple.
0: If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his brothers and sisters, mother and father, he cannot be my disciple.
1: And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple.
0: Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you goes to build a tower without first counting the cost? Otherwise, uh, uh, being unable to finish it, he becomes a laughingstock of uh, those that pass by. And So the question is, which of you does not first count the cost? Go ahead. Okay, so which of you going into battle uh, wouldn't first take stock of your army and the opposing armies, uh, opposing enemy's army and uh, try to determine if you're able to conquer, and if not, wouldn't you sue for peace? And uh, so it is with you. Uh, if you will not lay down your life, you cannot be my disciple.
1: Salt is good.
0: salt is good, but if it's lost its flavor, it's good for nothing but the dung hill. And so Jesus is asking uh, the question here regarding the cost of discipleship and the cost of Christianity. This is a question we'd rather not ponder, because it digs into issues that we really don't want to deal with. And that is the question of, uh, do you have uh, in place, the proper decisions and the proper heart attitude to, to complete your course as a Christian. And it implies that there's no such thing as costless Christianity. We don't like to hear that. More so in this generation than in any generation. Whatever happened to the free gift of salvation, that's what, that's what we're down on. That's what we like to hear about. Romans 3.24. We like that, justified freely, Romans 5.15. not like the offense that brought us all under condemnation but the free gift of God the grace of God we like that we like the sound of that romans 11:6 it is by grace then it is no longer of works otherwise grace is no longer grace see if it's by grace then it's no longer of works it has nothing to do with what i do it's just free there's, there's no price in this. All I have to do is say I love Jesus and that's it. I can live any way I want. I can do whatever I want. And I'm a Christian because I believe. Isn't that scriptural? Isn't that what the Reformation was all about? Was uh, salvation by faith and uh, away with all of this works mentality? And so we like that. We like the sound of that. Uh, we like the thought that God simply will bless us out of the goodness of his own heart. And we like to think, especially in terms of service and commitment, that we are free to set the limits on that. That we're able to determine just how involved we want to get, just how committed we want to get, just how consecrated we want to be. That's up to us. God doesn't care. You pick your level. You pick the flavor of Christianity that you like if you want to be a nice uh, tea party Christian, then you can do that. If you want to be a mad dog fundamentalist right-wing Christian, you can do that. You just pick your level, okay? And whatever Christianity fits and feels good, then you just live right there. That's, that's the great American way, isn't it? It's a religious smorgasbord. Do what you want to do, because after all, it's all free, and God really doesn't care how you live. It's a very interesting. As a pastor, whenever you preach on commitment or consecration, uh, uh, the the how upset people get. They just don't like to hear it, and they and they really start getting upset because you're challenging them to a commitment that they don't want to give, and the response invariably is, "Well, I don't have to. I don't have to go that far. I don't have to be that committed." So we've got these, this nice theology that we can stand on. We've got the theology of free grace. And, and uh, this is totally totally by grace. It has nothing to do with how I live. But then we've got an awful lot of the scriptures uh, that we're going to have to bring into the argument if we're going to be biblical Christians. Colossians 1.10. That you might walk worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him full of good works okay this is paul's letter to the colossians he says you know there's a way as a christian you have to live first timothy 6:18 Let the, he's, he's addressing a young pastor, and he's saying, this is what you need to communicate to your congregation. Let them be r- uh, full of good works, rich in good works, uh, willing to give, willing to sacrifice. Uh, Titus 2.14. Who gave himself for us that he might deliver us from all this ungodliness and all the wicked deeds that we, that we do by nature. And that we would live in a different way and we would be zealous for good works. There's that, there's that annoying word again, works. I thought this wasn't have anything to do with works. How come we keep hearing about works, Titus 3.8? If you've believed God, you should maintain good works. This is profitable to God and man. James 2, 17 and 18. Thus also faith, if it does does not have works, is dead. Faith, if it does not have works, is dead. It's critical understanding. Go on. Someone will say, you have faith. I have works. You show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. And he's saying that a lifestyle is the seal of genuine saving faith. And so uh, uh, let's have Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. What does the Lord require of you? This is the the nub of the matter. What does the Lord require of you? Whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. I don't want to hear about requirements. I'm saved by faith. I'm saved by grace. What does the Lord require of you? Love the Lord. Keep his word. Do his commandments that he commands you. Okay, foul, foul. Old Testament. That was Old Testament. God changed His mind. He's not into the commandments. Okay? Matthew 19,
1: 17.
0: Uh, There's, uh, There's none good but God. If you want to enter into life, keep His commandments. Now we're into New Testament, now we're into the words of Jesus. And uh, this, you know, this is a very delicate balancing act we're, we're working ourselves into. And this is a, the million-dollar question. See, you have to keep in mind, God didn't change his mind about what's right and wrong in the New Testament. He didn't, he didn't in the Old Testament say, now, this is, this is the way that a man should live. And in the New Testament say, well, because you're saved by grace, I don't care how you live. God didn't change his mind. He didn't change his mind about how we are to live. All he did was give us the ability to do that. And he moved us into a completely different arrangement where we are not trying to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor, but that favor produces something in us. It produces a commensurate lifestyle, Matthew 18:3. Unless you are converted, changed, transformed, and become as a little child, and you can go a a lot of different directions with that concept, you cannot see the kingdom. I thought this was all grace. I thought there was no requirements. Yeah, but there are dynamics that are involved in salvation. So just real quick, somebody give me an explanation for these apparently polar positions. Somebody tell me, how do you deal with this? Richard? Uh, I was just going to say, it kind of reminds me of uh, having one
1: teacher that you start out with nothing, and then you go to another grade and you have a teacher that says, all right, everybody has an A. Now everybody has an A, so
0: now you've got to maintain a your... Okay, so uh, Richard sees it as working from the bottom up as opposed to working from the top down, uh, the goal still being the A. Carol? a good concept, is uh, the concept of uh, uh, being a a slave to a master as opposed to the bride to the groom. Uh, Obviously, the slave to the master has expectations. He doesn't get involved. He doesn't help. This is what you're going to do. The the bride and groom have a love relationship. They're a unit. They're a team. Okay, Uh, let me sharpen the question just a little bit more though. Uh, In your theology, in your understanding of your relationship with God, uh, how do you um, balance, or uh, balance isn't the right, right word, it's not how do you uh, bring these two concepts together that I am saved freely by grace, and yet God has requirements of me. If, if He has requirements of me, doesn't that move my free grace into some sort of a works dynamic? Okay, Mark. Okay, very good. That's a thought. Is, uh, we're dealing with relationship. And again, go back to what I said a little earlier. God hasn't changed his mind about holiness or good or bad. And so uh, the Bible tells us that God is holy, so holy he cannot look at sin. All right? And so he has given us a cleansing. He's washed away uh, the sin so we can have now relationship. But if you have a relationship with a holy God, you're not going to drag all your garbage into that relationship with you. Because this relationship is about the love of God, and God is a holy God. And so uh, Jesus said, you know, this relationship works if you're interested in the things that I'm interested in. And if you'll do the things I've told you to do. Okay, I'm not just your buddy. Remember, I am your God. <laughs> okay, Sean. okay but the only and that's valid it's totally good uh the dynamic again is the element of relationship but even in relationships there are many times requirements for that relationship we're going to have a marriage here in just a little bit one of the requirements in that relationship is fidelity okay when you say i do uh, that wedding ring that you put on is supposed to cut off your circulation That means you're no longer free to I do with anybody but her and him. There are requirements now. There are requirements. There are requirements of provision. If you don't take care of her as your wife and protect her and provide for her, you're uh, you're, uh, undermining and destroying that relationship. So there are requirements, and uh, Sean is talking about this even as a father to his children. There are requirements for the maintenance of this relationship, Pete.
1: that ability to now, now lost my train
0: of thought. <laughs> because it gets a little convoluted, doesn't it <laughs> Okay, a good illustration that I read that uh, would be worth mentioning is a uh, is, uh, picture of father bringing his son into the garage, throwing on the light switch and saying, "Surprise, happy birthday." And handing him the keys to a brand new Porsche Boxster. Don't you wish you had a dad like that? I'm the son. I've just got this brand... It's mine. Is this mine? Free of charge? Yes, it's yours. Now, you have to pay the insurance. You have to pay the gas. You have to pay the maintenance. You have to... It's going to cost you. That gift is totally free. But from this point forward, it's going to cost you to maintain that. It's yours now. Now you have to keep it. You can't just leave it out, you know, in some bad neighborhood. You come back and it won't have no wheels. You got to take care of it, right? You've got to maintain it, or you'll lose it. Correct? How many of you? How many of you? You know, when I was a hippie, I didn't care about my car. I just wanted to get, you know, from where I lived to where they sold drugs and back. And that's as long as it could do that, I was happy, right? And so, uh, you know, change the oil. Oh, dude, bummer. Oh, change the oil, that's too hard, man. Just pass me another joint. And so I'd go through cars fairly rapidly. (laughs) You know, because invariably you'd be chugging down the road and you're looking out the back and this big cloud is following you everywhere you go. That's a bummer, man. And so you have to buy another $50 car and keep moving. Okay, uh, Dennis. Exact. that's the word. Grace is an enablement, all right? And if you read through the usage of the word grace, not only does it talk about uh, God's free and unmerited favor, which is its primary definition, but it also talks about uh, the grace of giving, for example. It is an enablement for you to do something. And grace is an enablement for you and I to live the law. And we're not saved by the way we live. We're saved by what Jesus did for us. But we are now enabled to live in a way that pleases God. Okay, lots of thoughts. We've got to keep moving or we'll never get through this. And so as appealing as costless Christianity is to our flesh, it simply can't be supported scripturally. And so we play all kinds of mind games to get ourselves off the hook. But just dealing with the text under consideration... It becomes painfully clear that salvation that is given us freely imposes a cost. By the very acceptance of that gift, a cost is imposed. Keep in mind that before Jesus asked the question, uh, which of you would uh, attempt anything without first counting the cost, he lays down some required works that we will consider in a moment. He says there are certain dynamics that have to be in place if this is going to work and make a genuine impact or have its desired end in your life. And he says in no uncertain terms, you cannot be my disciple if you don't deal with these things. There's a requirement statement right there. You can't, this isn't yours. This salvation isn't yours if you're not going to deal with certain issues and attitudes that are fundamental. So what are the costs that we can address here? And I'm I'm remaining in the text. If you want to study this through in Scripture, you'll find uh, there's quite a a great deal of obligation that came into our lives upon salvation. But sticking with our text, we want to look at uh, four things that Jesus addressed directly. And I want you to keep in mind that these are things that must be addressed at the outset. Remember, Jesus says, before you even get into this. So none of us has any real idea of what demands our Christianity may make on our lives. None of us knows if we're going to be martyred for our faith. We all like to think we could, you know, do it, but I don't know, you know. Burning alive is tough stuff. I don't know if I'm into that. You know, in fact, I know I'm not into that. The question is, could I endure it? I would like to think that I could. I would like to think that I could hold my mustard under the worst kind of threats and persecution, watching my children die for my faith and their faith. You know, that kind of stuff is staggering when you really begin to contemplate it. And we, we like to think in movie terms, you know, but it ain't a movie, man. There are people today that are dying all over the world. Just read the other day about a missionary shot in Lebanon. This poor girl was nothing but a nurse sharing her faith, and some insane person comes up and blows her away. This is what we're up against. This is what we're up against. This is reality. And all over the world, especially in Northern Africa, Christians die for their faith all the time. In Indonesia, Christians are dying for their faith. Uh So you never know. You know, we live in America. Thank God for our liberties. But uh, you never know. Things could change in a New York minute. But even if it's not a question of martyrdom, we we can't project individually what our Christianity will demand of us, what kind of forgiveness we may have to conjure up, what kind of relational difficulties we may have to deal with in love, uh, what kind of uh, financial issues may come our way. We, We cannot project these things accurately in terms of the incidentals, in terms of specific things that are going to come in our life and they're going to try our Christian faith. What we can do is say, am I willing to embrace certain overarching principles that when the heat comes down, I am in a place where I can push this thing through because I've already made some fundamental decisions about my life and about how I'm going to live. That's essentially what Jesus addresses in our text. And so if we'll back up to verse 26, he says, uh, unless you're willing to uh, forsake, and actually he uses the term hate, and obviously he's not, he's not saying you have to hate and reject your family. This is a, uh, a comparison of priorities. This is uh, Jesus saying, in contrast to the love and the service you have to give to me, by contrast, uh, the affections you hold for your family... You know, is synonymous with hate, so to speak, or in other words, it's it's just a whole lot lower consecration and commitment. Now, this flies in the face of current thought. Let's get a couple scriptures while I'm talking. Matthew four twenty-two, Rick, uh, Luke nine sixty-one and sixty-two. Richard, Mike Sanchez, get me uh, Luke fourteen twenty. Pete, get me Matthew twelve forty-eight to fifty. Pete Walter and uh, Sean, get me. Luke eighteen twenty nine to thirty. So you, the family has become the sacred cow of Christendom, and it's been elevated in most churches to the pinnacle of Christian duty. If you are uh, the good wife, the good husband, the good parent, uh, that's it, man. That's uh, you're, you're doing great. You're rocking your world, and so uh, the family has supplanted in most of the church world the known will of God and the needs of a lost world in being the ultimate arbiter in decisions that I have to make on various courses of action and so we see again and again people say, you know, we can't go into the inner city and pioneer because it would be unsafe for my family it would be unsafe for my children, it would be difficult for my wife it would be difficult for my family to adapt to an inner city culture uh, you know, it's such a horrible, horrible way to live, uh, and we're dealing with such uh, difficult people. Uh, we can't, I can't make my family uh, go through this. And we can't commit to coming to evening services because Junior needs his sleep, which, which he doesn't get anyhow because he stays home and plays computer games until 10 or 11. <clears throat> but, you know, it's, it is a, a, a handy excuse. And, um,. Uh, and, and, and you can't argue with it because it's family. I'm a, who am I to tell you what, what your pobrecito needs, you know? He, you know. Watch out. And we can't give because our family has needs. And weekends, weekends are, are for family recreation. They're not for laboring for the Lord. They're, right? See, the family becomes the ultimate arbiter in the choices I make because I've got this responsibility, I've got this commitment, and, uh, you know, uh, family comes first. Don't get me wrong. There are legitimate family needs. There are legitimate family needs. But what Jesus is saying is there's going to be times when meeting those family needs is, is going to have to take second place. that sometimes the demands that God is going to put on your life as a Christian are going to conflict with legitimate needs. And you're going to have to do the hard thing to obey God. That's where it gets difficult. And Jesus saw this way down the road. He saw the conflict that would come. You know, how many stories have we heard again and again uh, of Christians uh, getting saved, giving their lives to Jesus, and immediately their strong Catholic family or their strong Jewish family or their strong whatever family it may be immediately opposes this faith and says, you're not going to do that. If you do that, I'm writing you out of the will. If you do that, Uh, I actually had a friend back east who was uh, from an Orthodox Jewish family. When he got saved, his family held a funeral for him. So that's it. He's dead. He doesn't even live anymore. In uh, Muslims' families or in the Muslim faith, if you convert to Christianity, they'll kill you. That's why it's hard to get Muslims saved, man. (laughs) They may believe, but they ain't too into this, uh, you know. And so uh, so we're dealing with very genuine dynamics and bringing it down into our own little world we find many many times that there will be a conflict of interest between the kingdom of god and family needs but jesus drove this point home again and again matthew 4:22 and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him okay they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him the scriptures didn't throw in and their father just you know just to flesh it out that's very uh, that's a very Pointed statement. Because there goes the family business is what he's saying. There goes the family business. He's, he has great hopes for his son. They're going to take over. They're going to support him into his old age. They're going to pilot the boat. They're going to drag in the fish and he can retire and sit in a hammock by the shores of the Galilee. And all of a sudden, there go the kids. Where are you going? Who's going to take care of the boat? Who's going to mend the nets? Who's going to fish for me? I don't know, dad. All I know is I gotta do what Jesus called me to do. Ooh, that's a cold shot. But there it is <laughs> in the Bible. Luke. <laughs> Luke 9, 61 and 62. My dad was glad when I was coming to preacher. He figured I was a hopeless, hopeless case when I told him I had something to do. He was excited. <laughs> Luke, somebody lose that. Tough call. Follow me. Okay, but let me go say goodbye to my family. I'm leaving. But, 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 he who, who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back isn't worthy of the kingdom if you will not reorder your priorities you're not part of this right. Come on. Come on. Jesus sounds like a cult leader yeah. <laughs> Luke 1420. This is uh, spoken in the context of a parable where um, a wealthy man throws a wedding feast and uh, he sends out invitations to all his family friends and, um, you know, even in our culture to snub a wedding, uh, especially without valid excuses uh, frowned upon. Uh, it certainly doesn 't have the same weight as it did in Mid Eastern culture where we 're talking clans and tribes, and we're, you know you just didn 't blow off weddings you just didn 't do that and so here the master invites all the friends in, and the Bible says that on the day of the wedding, he sends out his servants to bring them all in, and one by one, they start making excuses, and the Bible specifically calls them excuses. And talks about one guy who's bought a yoke of oxen, another guy who's bought some land. And then he talks about, I just got married. I can't make it. I've got a family. I've got a wife. I've got another priority. I can't make it. Now, Jesus told that parable in the context of the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is like this. God says, come to me, and people start throwing up excuses why they won't come to him. And one of the most prominent excuses is going to be, I got a family to think about. And he labels it an excuse. Okay? Uh, Matthew 12, 48 to 50. Jesus is seated with a group of people that are listening to his teachings, and uh, someone comes to him and says, Hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside. They they want to talk to you. Well, you know, that's my mom out there. You know, I've got to go talk to my mom. No. Jesus Jesus (laughs) blows them off in the rudest way and simply says, You know, who's my mother? Who are my brethren? And he points to these people that are into the kingdom of God. And he says, this is my family right here. Okay? Now, you you can take this to extremes of stupidity, which some people do. Okay? Jesus obviously loved his mother, And communicated with her and walked with her and had relationship with her right up to his crucifixion. The Bible tells us as he hung on the cross, uh, he looked down and saw his mother standing there and he spoke to John, the beloved disciple, and said, uh, uh, you guys need to connect says, John, you need to take care of my mother. He's concerned about her. He's concerned about her welfare. This is not an excuse. Jesus jacked over the Pharisees for using their religion as an excuse to neglect their parents and to neglect family ties. So there's a balance. There's always a balance. But in priorities, God says, if you're going to get into the kingdom, this has to be number one. The kingdom has to be your first priority, and we'll deal with the rest as we go along. Okay. Ooh, it's got a funny feeling here this morning. <laughs> okay, let's move on to. We're looking at the context of this statement. You're going to count the cost. So the first count, you, the first cost you're going to have to count is this issue of family. Where does your family fall in? To your relationship with God. Next issue that Jesus addresses here is in verse uh, 27, uh, where he uh, deals with the issue of hating. Well, actually, he deals with the issue of picking up your cross and uh, following him. And we can carry the concept from the previous verse of hating yourself into this setting, where he's talking about self denial, self crucifixion. Matthew 16, 24, 26. Somebody get me that, Mark. Matthew 16, 24 to 26. To hate my own life doesn't imply self-loathing, just as hating your family doesn't imply rejecting your family. It, it's a contrast of priorities. And so family becomes secondary to God's interests, and then my own desires equally become secondary to God's interest. Are you willing to put aside your own desires, ambitions, plans, and say, God, whatever you want comes first? Everything that I'm about becomes secondary to you. The call to pick up the cross is a direct foreshadowing of Jesus' own death. He's talking about the redeeming work that he's about to enter into. He's going to go to the cross so that we can be saved. And he says, if you are not willing to sacrifice for the salvation of others... If you are not willing to put aside self-interest so that you can make an impact in the world, then you can't be my disciple because that's what I'm all about. I'm going to lay my life down for others. I'm going to lay my life down for others. Are you willing to do that? This isn't specifically a call to martyrdom. It's a call to a redemptive sacrifice. We can see very, very clearly exactly what Jesus is anticipating when he says, you have to pick up your cross uh, in Matthew 16, 24 to 26. We're going to be looking at this uh, scripture this morning a little bit in the sermon too. uh, So we're not going to go into great depth. But I just want you to grab a couple salient points. Matthew 16, 24 to 26.
1: own soul, or what shall a man
0: give in exchange for his soul? So he he starts this discussion off by picking up the cross, and he speaks specifically of denying yourself, losing your life for him, and uh, no longer contending to gain the world and the things of the world. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? And so he's, he's talking about, what does it mean to pick up my cross? It means self-denial. It means I'm willing to put my will and my desires under him. And uh, acknowledge him as the complete Lord of the choices of my life. Uh, losing my life for him. Uh, we're going to talk about that some more. Uh, get, stepping out of the materialistic rat race. And uh, saying, you know what, I'm not, I'm not into gaining this world. I don't need this world's approval. I don't need this world's uh, uh, trinkets and baubles and toys. Uh, uh, all I need is the kingdom of God. That's what I'm interested in. I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. Okay, now this is a requirement that Jesus puts away. He says, if you don't do this, if you're not willing uh, to put your own life down uh, to pick up your cross and follow me, then you're not going to be my disciple. Okay, the next thing he addresses uh, uh, is the specific area of materialism. In verse 33, uh, he, uh, he speaks... Uh, uh, what does he say in verse 33? Uh, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has... All that he has. Now we're talking about my possessions. Okay. Somebody get me Luke five eleven. Casey. Uh, Luke five twenty eight. Uh, Adam. Luke eighteen twenty two to twenty five. Richard and Jeff, get me Matthew thirteen forty four. The cost of being a disciple of Christ that we're pondering is that we have to surrender all. That we have. We're dealing with possessions. Luke 5.11 When they they bought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed Him. This is the early disciples. This is their livelihood. This is their future. This is their possessions, their boats. They leave them. They say, "Ah, that's all right. I'm not needing that now. I'm doing what God has called me to do. Luke five twenty-eight. So 28. He left all, rose up, and followed him. This is Matthew, the tax collector. And uh, he's making a very tidy income uh, through extortion and various processes uh, that governments are... Known for, and so uh, he uh, he's he's willing to just walk away from all that, walk away from a lucrative income, and say, you know what, Uh, Jesus has called me to be a disciple. Let me clarify again, because you know you always got to bring balance, or people go wacko. Don't quit your job. Jesus didn't ask you to do that. I'm not talking about uh, you know fiduciary irresponsibility. I'm not talking about being stupid. I am talking about making a choice ahead of time. So here, let, let's bring it down into real world. Uh, when Pastor Mitchell asked me to come on staff as associate pastor here, uh, I had been offered the week before a job making 3000 bucks a week in the programming field. And, uh, you know, I'm not making anywhere near that. <laughs> I mean, we're not even talking about even close to the same number of zeros. (laughs) Okay, and so, you know, lots of folks would say, you're an idiot. Walk away from an opportunity like that. But I don't think so. Because the ultimate issue was, am I going to obey God or am I going to do what I want to do? Is Jesus going to have my priority? And see, the, the, the thing was, is that was settled 28 years ago. When I first got into this, I said, Jesus, I have ruined my life. If you can fix it, you can have it. And I meant that prayer. I meant that. Okay, we'll open it for a discussion in just a minute. These are realities that you're going to have to face in life. Many, many people won't walk in and serve God because they want to go somewhere, make a lot of money, build themselves a life, build themselves a career. And God says, well, you know what? Uh, service to me comes first. Luke 18, 22, 25 said unto them, lacketh thou one thing, shall all that thou hast be distributed unto the poor, and thou shalt, shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich, and when Jesus saw that, that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall I have that, have riches un- entered into <laughs> King James English is a drag, isn't it? Okay, so King James English is as hard as hip-hop. And so you really got to work at it to get it down, all right? And so uh, you'll want to keep working on it. But what we're dealing with there is Jesus speaking to the rich young ruler. And saying to him, uh, you know, because the rich young ruler came to him, said, what do I have to do to get into heaven and have eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know, the commandments do them. And uh, he goes through a few of those, and, and the rich young ruler says, I do all those, i kept them from my youth. And he says, fine, one thing you lack, take everything you have, give it away and follow me. And this wasn't like us, you know, giving away everything we have is no big shake. We're talking about a man who, the Bible said, had great wealth. And he had to give great wealth away. And so, you know, he, the Bible says he went away sorrowful. He made a decision contrary to that. He wouldn't make the decision that Jesus called him to, which was, you're going to have to put it all on the line, man. You're going to have to put it all on the line and put me first, Matthew thirteen forty four. kingdom of heaven is like a man finding a treasure in a field. He goes and sells all that he has so he can have this one treasure. He sells all that he has so that he can have this. Because everything else is worthless compared to this. That's the parable Jesus is speaking, and that's the parable you and I have to take to heart. And so, notice in all of this, we're not talking tithe. (laughs) Nowhere nowhere in any of the scriptures have we read has he said, uh, you're going to have to forsake 10%. 90% do what you want but you can forsake 10% now what he says is you have to forsake all now again this doesn't mean go sell everything you have give it to the church I'm not talking about that I'm talking about an overarching perspective an attitude where you've already let go of everything you have so should God come to you and say I need your donkey you can say have my donkey instead of saying oh not Beulah you can't take Beulah See, you've already made the choices. You've already made the decisions. God's never asked me for everything. God God has blessed me so much. When I got saved, everything I had I carried in my pockets. Now it takes a big truck and then a little truck to move me. And so God has blessed me. He hasn't taken. He's given. But I have to live willing at any minute to say, You know what, God, it's yours. I, I don't care. You just can't get too attached to stuff. Amen. Okay. Finally, the final issue is our impact on the world. Somebody get me Hebrews 13, uh, 13 and fourteen. Uh, Richard, somebody over here, get me uh, uh, Matthew five, eleven. Uh, Daniel, Second uh, Timothy three, twelve. Uh, Don and Matthew ten, twenty-two. Sean. Okay, the last issue is the issue of evangelism and your personal flavoring of the world around you, salting our society. Jesus says, what good is salt if it's lost its flavor, if it's not making an impact, if it's not uh, uh, influencing uh, whatever it comes in contact with? And so of what value is Christ in us if that Christ in us doesn't flavor the world around us? If it's just my personal religion, which is what you hear all the time, religion is far too personal. It was never meant to be personal. Where'd you come up with that? Where'd you come up with religion is far too personal? Some blue blood ethic that has its roots and some hoity-toity perception of the world? Get off it. Religion isn't personal. Religion is the stuff of life. I keep my religion in my closet. Well, get it out of the closet because it's growing mold and foot fungus and things like that. It needs to come out of the closet. It was never meant to be in the closet. God help you if your faith is in a closet. It's been in the closet so long it's dead and you don't even know it. Your closet smells funny for a reason. Because your faith is in there and it's dead. And it has no value. Jesus said if that salt isn't making connections, the only thing it's good for is throwing it on the newer. It means it's lower than manure on the food chain if your faith can't be communicated and can't touch someone else you're not you're not in it man you're not part of it hebrews 13 13 and 14 He says, let us go outside the camp. This is imagery that may be a little foreign to us, but it's the picture of Jesus going outside of Jerusalem to be crucified, and in so doing, he's being put out. The reason why they did it outside of the city was not only for cleanliness issues, but it was saying, we reject you. You're not part of our culture. You're not part of our society. You're not part of our riches. You're not part of what we are. You're outside. And he says, as Christians, we are to go outside the camp willingly abandon the praises of this world and bear his reproach. When you bring Jesus up in the average conversation, it triggers reactions. And it always has a reproach factor involved. And what Jesus says is you have to brace yourself for this before you even get into it. You have to be willing to pay the price of social suicide if you're going to be a Christian. You have to be willing to pay pay that price. Because all your friends are going to say you've lost your mind. Yep. And all of the people that you talk to are going to say, get that Jesus out of here, blah, 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 blah. We've all heard it before. And so the bottom line is, is you've got to, you have to settle this issue before you can even be my disciple. Okay? Matthew five eleven. blessed are you when they revile you and they persecute you and they give you endless grief for my sake blessed are you second timothy 3:12 all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution all all not some not the committed ones Okay, so let me let me rephrase it. If you haven't taken any any heat for your faith, you better re-examine your faith. Because he said all, every person, every person who will live godly for Christ, who will live the Christian life, are going to voluntarily put themselves in a position of persecution by opening their mouth at the office party and saying, you know what? Uh... We shouldn't live in drunken revelry. We should live in holiness before the living God. Yeah, try that at the office party. See where your promotion goes. Right out the window. You try fronting all of your friends and saying, you know what, man? I'm living for Jesus. I ain't going to the rave with you tonight. I got saved, man. I'm living for Jesus. I don't need any more ecstasy. I don't need any more chicky babes. I'm going to be... Pure and holy. Try that on your girlfriend. No, honey. No, no, uh, no, kissy. No, ringy. No, nothing. We're not in this anymore. I'm living for Jesus. Try that on your boyfriend. Yeah. Whoa, honey. Try that on your boyfriend. Say, no. Nah, I, I decided I ain't kissing you no more. I got saved. See if he hangs around, or runs off down the street with his tail wagging behind him, in search of another puppy. See what will happen when you take a stand for Jesus, because Jesus said that's what's going to happen, okay? And so uh, one last scripture, Matthew 10, 22.
1: He shall be hated by all men for my
0: sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. You shall be hated by all men for my sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. That means if you don't endure to the end, you won't be saved. So what Jesus says, before we even get into this faith thing, before we even get into this Christian thing, you've got to settle some fundamental issues in your heart. This is going to cost you something. This is going to cost you something. And what you and I, the problem here, most of us understood this when we signed on to one degree or another. We were all, you know, we're into this. We gave our lives to Jesus. But the question is, has the cost changed somewhere along the line? Did the price tags, you know, has, has Jesus said, now that you're saved, I'm offering you a discount? I mean, you've been in the camp so long now, you don't have to pay these prices anymore. You don't have to worry about the family issue or the money thing. You don't have to worry about being a witness. Uh, it doesn't count anymore. You got saved. You're, you're in good now. You've got, uh, what, what do they call it when, a, when you can't fire a teacher? Tenure. tenure. You've got tenure. You've got Christian tenure now. And uh, so don't worry about it. No cost. free ride from here on out. Come on. Now, the whole issue was, do you have enough to carry this all the way through? Yes. Yes. Do you have enough to carry this all the way To the end. You're still here. You're still breathing. You ain't reached the end yet. Are you still carrying the same price tags on your Christianity that you started with? Casey? on no cost involved in our Christianity. Mark. (laughs) Paul says in Romans 12 too, that we are to give our lives wholly acceptable unto God. The image is laying our life down on an altar as a living sacrifice that he gets the whole thing. And, and he says this is your reasonable duty. Anything less is sub-Christianity. Okay, Mike. God gets their leftovers and so the old saying I'm not perfect I'm just forgiven should be changed to I'm not perfect and I'm not even trying but Peter said be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect and Jesus said the same thing and so there's something we are striving for we aren't perfect and thank God for grace and thank God for forgiveness and thank God First John says that if I sin I have an advocate with the Father because of a relationship that I am cultivating and I'm working at but that relationship, just like any relationship, isn't free. You know, try, try uh, living with your spouse the way you live for Jesus. Oh, I'll see you in a week, honey. See you next Sunday. See how it goes. We're out of time.